Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there folks, just me this week, Horace is on the move. This week we're going to be releasing the software panel uh, from the Micromobility Summit in California uh, from January. This is an awesome panel. Um, we had a kind of a wide range of different people um, and and dealing with lots of different aspects of the micromobility ecosystem. Uh, Stacy did an amazing job facilitating. It was a big panel. Um, but I look forward to hearing what you guys think. Um, before we jump into that, just want to do a shout out again, a reminder, um, there is the Micromobility Europe um, coming up on October 1st in Berlin. I'm going to be super exciting. We, I'm like, yeah, yeah, we get to have calls um, talking through who the speakers are going to be and I am overly excited. Um, can't release any details of who's going to be there yet, but we'll get there very soon. It's going to be awesome. Um, the quality of programming is going to be incredibly, incredibly high. Um, so look, uh, by all means, go get tickets. Um, the early bird, I believe, has just ended, um, but the uh, there are there are still some discount floats floating around if you know uh, where to look. Um, and the the other thing as well is obviously we're still doing micromobility newsletter, which is where a lot of um, people are getting their, their latest news from. Um, that's been put together by one of our team called Luke, and it is awesome. Um, highly recommend it. It's a great way to do it. It's a very good compliment to movements by Michael Nucker um, and Adam Falpin. Anyway, with uh, no further ado, I will pass We're you in the Bay on Area. to Stacey and Known as Silicon Valley to some, um, and when you're in Silicon Valley, you have Take to care. talk about software. Or like we like to say at the micromobility team, the mind for the bicycle. Um, so I'm very, very excited about this panel. This is a big panel. We've got quite a few entrepreneurs on this panel. And we're led uh, by Stacy. Uh, why I love Stacy is the only two times I've met her, she's been on a bike. And uh, I also like to not take a car, but no one exemplifies the micromobility lifestyle like Stacy does. So I'd like to invite Stacy and the team up here for the panel. Let's give them a warm round of applause. Thank you. You're not going to want to miss this. I mean, none of this stuff happens without software, right? So get your chit-chat done and come up and hear from the good people up here. Rough crowd. It is. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's like I should have invited my mom or something to at least cheer me on. Gosh. Okay. Woo! Thanks. <laughs> um, Okay, so we have a lot to cover in short time. Uh, if you want to know anything about these people personally, that's what LinkedIn is for. You can go use that. They are sitting in order for your service. Um, they are going to give one sentence about 
what they do, why they're here. I will kick it off with, I am Stacy Randecker, co-host of Flying Car Show on KGO 810 every Saturday morning. We sometimes talk about flying cars, but it's really about the transformation of transportation. Thank you, I'm William Henderson. I'm CEO and a co-founder of Ride Report. Uh, we work with city governments to help them use software to manage regulation and compliance for micromobility fleets on their streets. Hi everyone, my name is Tiffany Chu. I am a co-founder at Remix, and we build a transportation platform for cities. We work with about 300 cities across 15 countries around the world, and we help them plan public transit, um, plan for and manage new dockless mobility, and also design all of the streets uh, that support it all. Uh, hi, I'm Alex Kern. I'm CEO of Inverse, and we make uh, software and smart hardware for shared mobility operators in um, ride pooling, car sharing, moped sharing, and scooter sharing. Uh, so the things that help you uh, scale a mobility service reliably, usually you don't see it. It's tech in the background, a little bit like, like Amazon Web Services. Hi, everyone. I'm Jake Sione. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Transit. Uh, we build an app that integrates all the ways to get around your city with, uh, without your own car. Hi. I'm Victor Fontes. I'm the founder of ScooterMap. And ScooterMap is an app that helps people charging scooters make more money. Excellent. Um, OK, I'm a frequent user of micromobility. Bikes, scooters, that's my thing. Um, I find most apps to be about the same, um, but the issue is there's still all those freaking apps. So uh, do you think it will be ever possible to have one app to rule them all? What do you think, Jake? Yeah, um, <laughs> without saying one app to rule them all, I think it's very feasible that there will be one app that integrates more and more providers in the same place. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is the way we see sort of the emergence of uh, the, you know, the regulatory model that are in cities today where there are multiple providers, no one can overwhelm a city, and there's not enough coverage without, with a single provider. So uh, I'll give you an example from, from DC of what I mean by that. So uh, DC currently has the model where they have uh, open data available to all uh, open APIs available publicly, which means we at Transit have all the different operators integrated into the app. Um, uh, and so across DC, there are about 250,000 people every single month. Is my mic a I'll trade for a second? How's this? Yes. Yay. All right, a little bit better. Um, so in DC, we have about 250,000 people every single month using transit. Um, and what we find about that is when people open up the app, the odds that they find bikes from one uh, individual scooter provider or bike provider are about 25 to 45% within a quarter mile of them. When you aggregate them all, there's about a 75% chance that you're going to find a bike or scooter. Uh, and so in this world where it's much more likely for you to find uh, a bike or scooter you know, in one place, I think there, uh, there's another challenge that comes out of that. Which the second challenge being that you might imagine, because you need all of these apps, that people are going to download six different apps. Uh, you know, maybe you'd rather take the scooter in front of you than walk five or 10 minutes to get a different, uh, um, uh, to, you know, to use the scooter app that you already have. But what we also see in our data is most people only have one or two. So among our users who have uh, a scooter app, uh, you know, about 50% of them only have one. 75% of them have one or two. And so what we think is going to happen is that as there are more and more providers emerging in these cities, they're going to need distribution. Um, and they're not going to get it just by turning on their app in a city. Uh, and so there are going to be natural channels to uh, have distribution, which will be you know, whether it's the native mapping platforms like Apple and Google, 
you know, whether it's ride-sharing companies or whether it's apps like Transit, I think, uh, you know, operators are going to look for distribution, which will lead to, you know, more and more scooter providers being deeply integrated into uh, apps like ours. All right, well, I'll follow yeah. that up with um, the natural thing, um, I don't know, Alex thinks it's hell, I think it's awesome, uh, Moss. Um, the leading mobility integrator, WIM, says it's coming to the US this year. But guess what, this isn't Finland. So how do you think they'll fare? And who else do you think will compete in the space? Uh, so if you ask for, I think, uh, any panel what, what mass is, you'll get 100 different definitions. So we'll start by let's define mass, uh, or I'll define it how I see it. You know, the ability to uh, uh, pay for transportation all inside of one interface, whether it's some form of bundle, so, you know, 100 minutes of, uh, of scooter a month plus, you know, unlimited public transit, whatever that bundle looks like. Uh, or something like what Uber and Lyft are doing with these subscription offerings. So we'll start with that. And uh, Wim is a company in Finland that's offering sort of a mobility bundle where you buy sort of this, you know, all-you-can-eat package or different packages of mobility offerings. Um, so to address that first, I think, uh, you know, I think one of the challenges uh, that, that I see, and I have a lot of, you know, respect for what they're doing, and I think they've really been sort of a, a leader and an innovator in, in, in mobility as a service is, um, you know, I think the go-to-market in, in, in the U.S. is, is challenging uh, in that world, uh, th that they're, you know, looking at coming here. I think, you know, if you take a city like Boston, um, where, uh, you know, are Uber and Lyft going to be part of that bundle? And the Blue Bikes, which is the, the, the former Motivate bike share system that's owned by Lyft now, are they going to be part of that, that, that bundle, that mobility uh, as a service bundle? Um, are you going to have, the, you know, the MBTA that today is using us as their sort of official app? Do they want to move over to a new platform? Uh, Cubic, the payment provider for the MBTA, are they incentivized to work with, you know, uh, a whim? So I think, you know, the question I have is, unless this is sort of this top-down mandate that's coming from the city that says, hey, I want every single operator in the city part of this mobility as a service subscription model, uh, I think it's I think it's a tough to work out that way. I think what the city and government's role is is not to say I need you know all of you operators to do this one thing I want you to do. I think their role is to say we want a competitive ecosystem, we want an open ecosystem, we want open APIs to ensure that we don't have a market you know we have a marketplace and not walled gardens of services in one place. Um, and so in order to do that properly, I think you have to start with the user. If you're able to channel massive demand uh, because you've created such a great user experience, operators are going to want to work with you not because they have to because the city mandates it, but because uh, you know they want to do it. And I think that's that's really the right approach for mobility to services to start with the user. All right, I like that. Um, but uh, users yeah. and riders aren't the yeah. only ones who need to find these scooters and bikes. Uh, fleet operators and chargers need to know where they are as well. Victor, you're working on Scooter Map. Yeah. Uh, which so how do you do that, and why can't we have one place where the consumers can find them all? Yeah, I think the thing is that it's really hard to aggregate everything right now because there aren't uh, open data and consistent standards, and the cities aren't mandating what uh, what the companies have to share. So I make it really easy for multiple for a charger to work for multiple companies. So if you have five scooters on your block, you want to be able to pick up all of them and charge them, even if they're from different companies. You don't care what company they're from. You should be able to pick them up and charge them and get paid. You don't want to add to pollution driving around and congestion, searching for scooters. And it really helps the companies, too, because they're able to spend less money charging each scooter. Um, but the, I think the. To aggregate, uh, there are different apps that serve different purposes. So like Transit may be good for 
um, certain consumers that have the profile of they want to ride the BART and they like scooters. But there could be somebody else who only does ride sharing who wants just a ride sharing comparison app. So the city, I think we're aligned and the cities need to provide open data and mandate that so that other apps can exist to, for different consumer behaviors. I don't think there's going to be one app that wins them all, but if cities allow an even playing field, then companies can build on top of what these operators are doing. Excellent. I, I like, I, I can, I, I really wanted just one ring, you know, one app, but I, well, I, you'll get, I, I think you'll get one that. app, right? Like if there is competition, there'll be an app that's perfect for you. Yep. Um, and, but the app that's perfect for you isn't going to be the app that's perfect for me. Um, so there needs to be a marketplace there. Love it. Okay. Um, asset location is important for all involved. Um, I, I mean, I've been on hunts for phantom bikes and scooters, and I'm like, I end up, where is this thing, you know? Um, is anyone really nailing it? Like, they know where their assets are at all times. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's a really hard problem. I mean, GPS is inaccurate. Uh, there's a huge amount of fraud and vandalism, and these companies haven't been focused on it. Operators have been, it's buy scooters, get more rides, raise more money, buy more scooters, get more rides, raise more money. Um, we're going to start to see companies will have to become more cost consci conscientious because uh, it is a huge problem and they're going to need to be profitable eventually. Um, but there are a lot of technological solutions that are happening. Um, I mean, an interesting one that I've talked about is there's a company Tile where you, ha you clip on something onto your keys and then that gets smarter with the network of when other people pass by your tile, they, it pings the network and updates where that tile location is. So we could do something like that with scooters because GPS isn't accurate on its own, but what if we have a Bluetooth mesh network? Or what if cities uh, sponsor Wi-Fi and that Wi-Fi also helps geolocate scooters? And what if we like look at the pattern, like super pedestrians talking about putting sensors so that uh, when a scooter falls over, something happens to a scooter, they're able to detect that. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of innovation that will help detect bad behavior and just help with geolocation. Excellent. like it. Um, let's see. Oh, Alex, uh, you are at Inverse, uh, which has a long experience uh, managing car sharing. So, uh, sorry, why are you here? <laughs> Yeah, so we, we did exactly car sharing. Uh, we started building car sharing technology 25 years ago. And uh, four years ago, we went into the two-wheeler business, which uh, is, fits into the definition of, of micro-mobility, moped sharing, which is which is quite big in Europe, um, and now also scooters. So how do you translate what you do into a smaller, lower-cost vehicle, which is also in a more susceptible state? Yeah, I think there, I mean, there are a number of similarities. So ultimately, if you look at car sharing and, and, and micromobility, it's about driving utilization to drive your revenue, as well as operational excellence to, to do this at, at uh, a relatively low cost. And what um, we learned is that there are also quite a number of differences. So the transactional volumes for micromobility is much higher. Than, much more trips a day, but also the operator needs to touch the vehicles much more frequently. So it's usually a day at least to charge them. Whereas in, in car sharing, it can be a week that you don't see your, your asset. And 
this is something um, where then actually the, the technology needs to provide more value. You need to have more automation, more insights in what's actually going on to do to enable this operational excellence. And um, so what we learned and, and decided is that we also need to build, because many of this is happening on the software layer, as long as you can rely on a, on a good, uh, good device management with, with accurate GPS data. But a lot of the automation is happening on the software layer. And so we decided to also build a new uh, software suite for, for micromobility, which we're also launching today. It's called uh, InstaFleet. Sorry, you're launching today? Yes, we launched. We took this venue to launch InstaFleet. Oh, so you're you're, and it's not just the mopeds anymore. You're going down to like my stuff. It's it it covers scooters, mopeds, as well as cars in the futures. But we start with micromobility because we see that there's the most volume and and excitement. So um, this is something that's uh, very interesting to me. The blowback on scooters is so aggravating to me. Um, if I could lift up, you know, some of these two and three ton vehicles, I'd toss them right in the bay too. But uh, unfortunately, I can't do that. Um, but the scooters, you know, they have, I'm sure there's a whole flock that are out there. So do you have any advice for operators on um, how to control your assets? And they, hopefully they don't meet their demise? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there are three, I think, groups that affect this. One, the operators and their behavior themselves. I think we learned in the previous panel, being doing the right thing and, and being being responsible is, is definitely one, one uh, good way to address this. But then there's the outsiders that don't have anything to do with it, that probably do vandalism. And there is tech that can help to a certain extent um, that the the, um, uh, to deter it by alarm signals, um, as well as uh, more like prosecution. So in, in, in Germany, we, we have a large, um, or the largest moped sharing operator that um, sometimes has thefts, but the police also now has learned to trust our GPS positioning so well that they then go right after it and usually can recover it. <laughs> Sorry, you're saying the police in Germany will chase down private assets from a, a, a from assets from a private company and do something about it? Yes, they do. Oh wow! So it's not it's not um, so it's mopeds. So it's a little bit you can see it at our booth a, a little larger vehicle. So I would imagine they probably can't go after each. I don't uh, I don't know if, scooter. Uh, where, if Michael's in earshot, but I doubt SFPD is helping yeah. him out when yeah. he when a scooter goes. And there are fun stories way. around it how they find them and in which circumstances. But um, yeah, so this is happening, and so this is one way to deal with with the outsiders that's uh, enabled by by technology. And I think the third uh, is, is the riders themselves. I mean, ride responsibly. I think there's also technology can enable more uh, or better education at scale and also enforce responsible behavior, for instance, um, limiting speed in pedestrian areas. So we have a few solutions that, that you can also look at uh, our booth. Um, Overall, I think it, one, one important thing is also time. I think it's fun maybe to throw it into the water one or once or twice, but maybe the third time it's not that exciting anymore. We can only hope. Um, okay, oh, oh, cities. Um, 
Yeah, sorry. Got tired here. Okay, cities. Um, the cities seem to be a mixed bag in terms of their affinity towards this category. For example, my heroes in Santa Monica compared to my hometown of San Francisco in embracing these new modes. Uh, Tiffany and William, you're both working with cities. What exactly are you doing for them? And what do you do that benefits operators? Sure, I'll start. Um, so I think one of the most exciting things for me that we're doing with cities right now is uh, bringing in all of the different types of dockless data, um, bringing it into a single place for them to do uh, different types of analysis on what people are doing, where are the trips happening, um, kind of like a heat map of where all the the riders want to go from like uh, you know a trend-based origin destination perspective, and then tying that to infrastructure investment, which I know everyone in this room is really excited about because streets are the foundation for all of these different forms of micromobility. So, one of the things that we're noticing is that um, I think the first at first blush, cities were really wary of these new things, kind of dropping down from the sky and not really knowing what to do with them. Um, but then more and more, we're realizing that everyone is part of you know the the cohort that is arguing for stronger active transportation infrastructure, which formerly was a really, really niche group of advocates who you know, were known as the hashtag bicycle lobby, very powerful. And all of a sudden, um, there are all these new voices in the room who are advocating for the same thing. So that's one thing that we're doing at Remix that we're, we're really excited, excited by. So you're advocating for, for lighter lanes, bike lanes, scooter lanes? We are, through visualization and mocking up designs for bike lanes that I think previously were seen as really polarizing, but then once you overlay where all of the dockless vehicles are going, you can see their desire lines. It's where people want to go, and they've always wanted to go. It's just that we've never had the data to, to see it like that. Now, what do, you, what do you do about the, if they're dockless, they can be anywhere, they can go anywhere. So my big problem is, I live on top of a big fat hill. There are, there is not a dock solution there, and um, the dockless don't always make it up the hill. So I'm like hoofing it <laughs> to go get to the bike, and they won't let me have the scooters up there either. So how do you solve for, I didn't get one in the first place to ever get into this? Are you talking about an equity issue in terms of access for different neighborhoods, or what? Yeah, equity. Equity. <laughs> um, well, no, just there's, um, in terms of quantity, is, is my thing. Is there enough? Is there enough of a network effect? Can people rely on this as a mode and choose it? Um, or, or, you know, you're saying where people want to go. Well, it's also a factor of where the bikes were placed in the first. Oh, oh, oh for but, sure. Yeah. So I think one of the really fascinating things that we're starting to see in this in this space for planners specifically is there are all these new questions that all of a sudden they can ask. You were never taught in planning school that distribution metric of dockless things was like a metric that one could even think about asking when you looked at a GIS system. And all of a sudden, we can ask that. And all of a sudden, planners who have that data and cities who have asked for that data can ask those questions. So maybe we can look at different neighborhoods, different districts, slice and dice where people are actually accessing them. Maybe it's like from every intersection, how far does it take for me to, at, to, to walk to or take transit to um, a certain vehicle, et cetera. I think there's all these new questions that we can ask and we're only scratching the surface. How are you, William? Yeah, so um, I think the most helpful thing that we've done for cities has also been helpful to operators, at least in the long run. 
Um, sometimes it feels like a little bit of good cop, bad cop. You know, we're, we're hopefully the good cop, but not always. Um, but really, I think the reason that that dynamic exists in the first place is that cities are ultimately in charge of the rules for how their streets are being used. And it's taking everybody a little bit of time to adjust to that reality. Uh, it's taking the operators time to adjust to that reality because that's not the way ride hailing worked and we don't want uh, this to work the way ride hailing worked. No one wants that. At least no one in cities wants that. <coughs> um, <coughs> Okay, and it's also taking cities time to adjust because if they are going to be the rule makers, um, they need to have new mechanisms for you know building those rules, designing those rules, enforcing those rules that make sense in a software-driven world, right? Which is what the operators work in. So you know the idea of um, year-long regulation cycles and you know fairly static policy doesn't move at the speed that software moves. And so as soon as the policy starts to lag behind the speed of innovation of these companies, the companies are effectively operating outside the rules. And that's unpredictable, right? If they're doing something that is outside the rules or an area that, of the rules that's undefined and cities don't like it, the cities have the authority to crack down on it, right? But if the rules were not clearly defined and articulated to the operator, they might not know that they're breaking the rules or they might think they can get away with it. So there's actually a lot to be gained for everyone when you move to a world where the rules are clearly defined and they're available via software. Uh, and that's really what we've done. And, and it's taken a, a big load off of uh, the plate of a lot of our cities because what they actually do and want to do and are good at doing is designing and building our streets. That's what they do. What they don't want to do is babysit. <laughs> and we think a lot of the babysitting is, you know, can be done with, with software so that you know, on a day-to-day -day level, compliance is essentially automatic, and then it's enforced periodically using auditing. Our, total like rando question. Are either of you working with Santa Monica or San Francisco on micromobility? Not directly. I would say um, we're in conversations. We would love to be. <laughs> good answer. Okay. That's a good one. Um, so we've been hearing a lot about MDS, mobility data specification. Um, what do you think of this, and how do you help support it? Um, I think it's great. I think it's really, really, really necessary to have a standard. Uh, it's the starting place for exactly what I was describing before, where you can have an easier job for operators to do the right thing, to be their best selves, and an easier job for cities to define and enforce the rules and do what they're really good at, which is designing our streets and making them better for everyone. And MDS is a strong foundation for that. Um, I think you know, the challenge for the MDS is gonna be growing at the speed that the industry is growing at. So a lot of the early issues that came up on this stage probably should be part of MDS, right? I mean, like, an unlocking standard would make it so that we could have not one app to rule them all, but any app to rule them all. So I could be in any app that I want and unlock the scooter. Um, another one that came up is, like, what happens to all these disabled scooters? Well, you know, in the MDS, there's not a clear specification right now for how we deal with vehicles that become disabled and whether they count against the cap or not. That's different city by city. 
So if cities had a very clear rule that said, hey, if it's in the bay, it counts against your cap, we'll start seeing all this innovation around flotation devices and whatnot to get the, you know, you have to create the right incentives to allow innovation to occur, right? right? And right now the incentives are, you know, MDS is a great, great start, but it's going to have to move at the speed that, that the companies are innovating at. So I'll go a step further and say I think MDS is actually pretty groundbreaking. I don't know how many of you were listening closely to Ryan and Salita talk in the last panel, but um, MDS is one of those, well, first of all, I think it's one of the first data standards that's actually pioneered from a city perspective. And how many data standards in the world exist from a city perspective? It's like pretty incredible in that sense. Secondly, well, I think, let me, let me give a quick shout out to, uh, uh, TriMet, I think Bibiana McHugh is the yes. IT manager at TriMet up in Portland that pioneered GTFS, the General Transit Feed Specification, which gave birth to many companies on this stage to begin <laughs> with. And that was created 15 years ago. Yeah. So it takes time for a data standard to kind of figure out itself with the right governance structure and the right community around it. Um, but I do want to highlight, I think, the other really incredible part about MDS is not only is it just like a one-way, like, providers share data back to the city in this kind of like domineering way, but it's also, cities can also share data back to the providers in kind of a two-way two -way format. And that is, I think, the uncharted territory here that um, is, is, is really, really exciting for the yeah, industry. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting what micromobility unlocks with software. Like, the Internet of Things was like a fad five years ago where it's like, oh, Internet of Things, everything's gonna be connected and Amazon released a microwave you can talk to. Like, that's super lame. But now we have scooters that are like connected devices throughout the city, and we understand how people are moving around, right? Cities can actually, using like dashboards, have insight into where people want to go, and they'll see, like, they have to figure out how to do the privacy so they don't see that Stacy is uh, on the hill and she can't get where she wants to go, but they'll see the people there have a mobility need um, but it goes beyond mobility. It goes to like the mesh network I was talking about earlier, or uh, what if you have sensors that can sense pollution um, in these vehicles? So you have an understanding of how uh, cities' air quality is evolving over time, and having and that that could help micromobility with saying, "Hey, look, cars put uh, more pollution on the street, and we can show it in these areas." So there's a lot of untapped room with software and with the data that comes there. So I think it's going to be really exciting to see how these vehicles really help cities. Oh, my word. That's brilliant. I, didn't, I hadn't viewed the vehicles as vehicles or other things. I other mean, they're than, computing yeah. devices yeah. everywhere, yeah. connected computing devices. They're like smartphones, yeah. but uh, controlled more by like a few providers. Um, and we have to figure out how to leverage that data. Uh, you teed up very perfectly about privacy. Consumer privacy has reached a fever pitch over the past two years, uh, namely in GDPR, massive corporate hacks, and infestations via Facebook. How do you protect user-level privacy? Uh, Go ahead. You <laughs> personally, um, I mean, we collect pretty much no data on the user. Uh, people log in with their email, um, and we don't share that with anyone. Uh, we just have an email list where we send them helpful emails about saving money. So I don't have that problem yet. Um, but I think there's the real issue is uh, with scooter locations on the map, can you figure out what, uh, what, what 
where people are moving and what they're doing. If the scooter is parked in front of somebody's house and then goes uh, to a brothel and then goes to work, right? Like, that's going to be valuable information. Um, <laughs> Is that where you're going, Victor? <laughs> I don't know where the brothels are, but <laughs> could be valuable. Excellent. Bill Ford, example or something, yeah. Um, uh, so I, I think there are a couple of things that, that uh, I'd like to say on privacy. I think. Uh, the first thing is, you know, even with um, you know millions of people using the app, we don't today still require someone to create an account. You don't have to share any personal information with us. Uh, you know, re you know, uh, your your email, your name, your you know phone number, payment details. Those aren't required to use Transit. I think the second thing is just general respect for the user, um, even if it's sort of at a detriment to your product. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a crowdsourcing feature in Transit that allows you to improve the real-time information of the bus you're on. So. You know, a lot of, you know, most transit agencies today have GPS on all their buses that provide real-time information. The best ones are pulling every two, three, four, five seconds, which are awesome. The ones that, uh, you know, are older or based on radio technology might be three or four or five minutes. So our users can crowdsource their location on these vehicles to improve the quality of the real-time information. If we really wanted to have the best quality, we could do background location tracking and be tracking our users at all time to improve that data, but it's fully opt-in. A user is, knows and they're aware that they're sharing it, and, and they do it to be generous and you know, altruistically help other riders, uh, and they get points as well, which you know, everyone loves. Um, but they're not forced to do it, and it's not background location tracking. So I think it really starts from respecting your users and, and making sure they know what you're, what you're doing. OK, I've got um, uh, two more questions. So in this uh, vein of privacy, we've seen Uber and Lyft hold on to their data for dear life in the name of consumer privacy. But we all know that a good chunk of operational secrets that would come along with that. It's the reason autonomous vehicles will likely never communicate with other brands. Are micromobility operators being afforded the same level of privacy as these other platforms, modes, technologies? I'll take a crack at that. Um, so I think privacy really starts with business models. Um, if you're a company that makes money by collecting data and either selling the data or making inferences from the data that lead to advertising or product sales, it's really hard to actually care about privacy because your business is driving you to collect more and more sensitive data. And like you look at a company like Facebook, they're in a tough spot because everybody in the world is using Facebook. So the only way they can make their company more valuable is by collecting more and more invasive data. That's the problem. So cities play a role here because cities can help guide and incentivize business models that don't uh, come at the expense of privacy. So I do think cities play a big role here and can lead by saying, we don't want that, it's not fair to our citizens, it doesn't align with our equity goals, and we're gonna get on the right side of this early. Uh, and I think that that's really, really important, and, and it's, it's a difficult conversation because of the current dynamics of you know, Uber and, and others in the past using privacy as kind of a shield. And cities can, you know, they have two ways they can react to that. They can say no, we don't buy it, we need the data. Uh, another way they can react is to say, we think we can actually get what we need in a way that respects privacy, and furthermore, we think you can too. They can hold Uber and anyone else who's using their streets to an even higher standard, um, and that's what I would love to see, because I think ultimately, 
as sensors get more pervasive and the data and inferences that you can draw from the data become more embedded in our everyday life, this is going to become more and more an equity issue. And cities, I mean, that, that's what they do, right? So they, I'll leave it there. Okay. So when we were on our call, we started talking about autonomous micromobility. And two days later, we, the autonomous car hack over here, it was, hey, Uber's looking for autonomous engineers for micromobility. <laughs> Almost fell over. And, and then we thought, oh, is it for real, really? And then Ryan gets up here and it's like, yeah, we're gonna do it. So what do you all think of autonomous micromobility? Where will we see it? How fast? I mean, it's not coming anytime soon. Like, <laughs> I was really excited about driverless cars in high school. Um, like, I'm a nerd. I was like, they're going to come. It's going to be so awesome. I'm, I'm You're going to watch movies. Do you want to qualify, like, how old you are? Like, was that, was that, was that like, last year? Let's say or? that was 10 years ago. Okay. Um, so, I was, yeah, and they're still not here. And, like, the best driverless cars are relying on really expensive, big tools. Um, where LiDAR and a lot of compute. So you're not going to be able to put a $10,000, 200-pound computer onto a scooter anytime soon. Um, it's nice that they're not going to kill you if they hit you, but it's still a hard problem. It's going to be years out, in my estimation. But it's exciting that people are starting to work on it, so that's great. <laughs> I, I think we might. It depends on where you draw the line, but I think one thing that's interesting is that in order to get to autonomy, cars have to make a flying leap from the driver is in charge to the computer is in charge. And if at any point during that flying leap they kill somebody or anything like that, it's kind of like a huge step backwards. And I think scooters and bikes, you know, might be able to take little baby steps. So we might see a scooter next year that can park itself properly when somebody leaves it in the middle of the sidewalk. That's kind of a cool use of autonomy whether it's self-driving, I mean, who cares, right? It's using technology to make a better service, and you know, hopefully uh, there's some interesting things that can be done with LiDAR and other sensors to actually make a better service. Yeah, um, and I, I just want to clarify, in case anyone is confused, autonomous micromobility is sans rider. It is just to reposition the vehicle, get it home, park it, et cetera. We're not talking about you are going to get on a bike and that thing will ride you around. No. I sometimes That's ride with no hands. Stop thinking that. Yeah, OK. Um, well, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for um, joining us. And please thank our panelists.